chapter 1. We just finished last week the Gospel of Luke. And as you maybe remember or perhaps already know, um, Luke and Acts were both written by Luke, who was a physician and a historian, traveled with Paul extensively. So a lot of the second half of the book of Acts, at least, was his personal experience. The book of Luke, he most likely interviewed Mary and all sorts of other people. He came up with a lot of details that some of the other Gospels don't have. And so um, he wrote both books together. They were probably originally Luke and Acts, probably just one book. They were addressed to a guy named Theophilus, who we don't know anything about except that because of the way that, that Peter addressed him in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, um, he used the terms that you would use for someone who is high up in the political world. And so he was probably a Roman official, but it's interesting that his name is Theophilus, which means God love. And so he at least had parents that had some sense of who God was and the importance of, of God loving us and us loving God. Um, so perhaps he was a Christian. Maybe he was just someone who was interested. We don't know. But the Gospel of Luke took us up to the point where Jesus had risen from the dead. And, and the book of Acts picks up. It was generally called Acts in most of the manuscripts. And in some of them it was called the Acts of the Apostles. Um, in reality, uh, uh, calling it the Acts of the Apostles is a little bit of a stretch because primarily it's the Acts of two Apostles. Peter in the first 12 or so chapters and then Paul from chapter 13 on. Um, but beyond that, not just Acts of the Apostles or Acts of Peter and Paul, but ultimately it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit as he worked in the church. And so it continues, what the Holy Spirit's doing continues until today. That's, there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts, but that's why there's a group of churches that plant churches and they call themselves the Acts 29 network. And they're good guys. And, and the idea is that, that the work of the Holy Spirit continues in the church today. So um, that's a... That's a good thing to keep in mind. God isn't finished. He didn't, he didn't wrap anything up. The book of Acts kind of tails off, and we really, he leaves a lot of things unsaid. Paul's in prison, but he hasn't died yet, and so on. So the book of Acts begins with what happened um, as Jesus ascended into heaven in chapter 1, and then we have the Holy Spirit coming upon the believers in Acts chapter 2. He begins, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So he says, in the earlier chapters in Luke, I wrote to you all about everything that Jesus did and everything that he taught. And now we're coming to the point where he ascended, but he said, in between, Jesus had many infallible, just things that you couldn't even argue with. So much, such a preponderance of evidence of his resurrection. And so he said, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to share with you now what happened after that. Many infallible proofs for 40 days from the day when Jesus rose from the dead, he was appearing to people, talking with people. Um, there are at least 10 separate appearances of Jesus with witnesses after his resurrection by comparing the accounts of all the Gospels. And in one of them, well, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about one time where Jesus actually appeared to over 500 people 
at once. And Paul, at the time he was writing 1 Corinthians, said, and most of these guys are still alive today. You can ask them yourself. It's impossible to fake a resurrection that involves that many people who were eyewitnesses of it. And so Luke just wants to lay down the, the evidence. He wants to build the case. He wants to make it clear that this isn't just a theory. This is something that actually happened. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so he says, during that 40 days of Jesus appearing, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he said there's a promise of the Father. Now, over in Luke, in the last chapter, um, Luke records Jesus talking about this as well. And he says, um, uh, Luke 24, beginning with verse 46, he said, Thus it's written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, and repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So the promise of the Father was what he had talked to them about. John's gospel goes into great detail about how he talked to them about what the Holy Spirit would do. But here he's saying, until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, until that promise is fulfilled, just hang around Jerusalem. Now, it's not necessarily, uh, it doesn't necessarily follow that we need to tarry for the Holy Spirit. As there are some traditions today that would say, you just need to get in a room and wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus said that if you ask for the Holy Spirit, believe that you've received it and that, you know, if, if your own father wouldn't you know, give you a rock when you ask for bread, certainly your heavenly father is going to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So I believe that we should ask to be filled with the Spirit, but I don't think we have to tarry for anything because the day of Pentecost has already come. And so he says, uh, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. At this time, they didn't have a clue as to what he was talking about because the idea of being baptized by the Holy Spirit, all they knew was water baptism. And so he, this would become clear to them about 10 days later on the day of Pentecost, as we will see when we get into chapter 2. Um, now he says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still locked into this, and, and they didn't understand that there was going to be a time delay, nor did they understand the spiritual nature of, of the kingdom. And so, again, when he was saying the promise of the Father, they're thinking, oh, the promise, okay, you're going to set up your kingdom. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. They were interested about when he was going to come back and set up his kingdom. Now, knowing what Jesus probably knew at that point, that it wasn't going to be for a while, you could see why he couldn't explain that to them. But he said, you know what? That's the Father's business. The Father sets the timetable. He said, as far as you're concerned, you're going to receive power, dunamis, to be my witnesses throughout the world. You know, in Jerusalem, Judea, which is the area surrounding Jerusalem, the southern part of Israel. Samaria, that's their 
neighbor to the north and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. I, I, I still think that it's, that this is relevant where today there are so many people who are so obsessed with when is this going to happen? And we've seen people over and over again make predictions that have turned out to be wrong and, and really foolish. And it goes against what Jesus said to the disciples right here. Now, I am as interested as they were. I'm as interested as anyone about when the Lord's going to come back. But I'm ready for him to come back at any time. And I'm not doing the math to figure out whether Obama's name adds up to 666 or two. I've just been around too long. It was supposed to be Henry Kissinger at one point. It's all oh, Jimmy Carter. It was all these, everybody's predicting all these people who are going to be the Antichrist. Going back to the time of Nero, Adolf Hitler, there were all sorts of people who were, people had done the calculations, and I think this is, you know, the Antichrist, and, you know, we're getting really close. He always wanted us to know that we are close because he could come back at any time, and I absolutely believe in the imminent return of Christ. But what I don't want to do is waste time arguing about when he's coming back at the expense of me not obeying the great commandment and commission that he gave all of us. And he said basically, look, I don't even want to tell you about the times and seasons what I want you to do is be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can carry the message of the gospel out to other people. It's just way more important. And so where the Bible teaches on prophecy, I think we should pay attention to it. There are special blessings, and here over the next uh, you know, three or four months, when, when at the end of the year, we'll start our study in the book of Revelation, and We'll devote some time to um, biblical prophecy and things like that. But it's ironic how divided the church can be about really particular distinctions when it comes to prophecy. And even people who believe in a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial rapture have big fights over exactly when it happens and does the Ezekiel 38 and 39, is that referring to the, the Battle of Armageddon? Is it referring to something before the rapture, after the rapture? Not to mention, okay, some people think the rapture is in the middle of the tribulation. Some people think it's at the end. Some people don't think there's a rapture. And, you know, I'm, I'm very convinced in my position, and so I, I won't apologize for believing what I do about prophecy, and I'll teach it as much as it comes up in Scripture. But at the same time, I don't want to be like the disciples who, instead of going out and spreading the gospel, they wanted a big prophecy conference, and Jesus just said, no, nope, it's not your problem. Your problem is you need to be filled with the Spirit, and you need to go share the gospel to others. And I hope you don't take any of that as being derogatory toward anyone. Everyone has to figure out what their emphasis is, but here... Jesus said, it is not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. That's good to remember. And whatever your position ends up being prophetically, hold it in humility and don't allow it to be divisive. I know I'm right. Maybe you know you're right. Okay, but that is an elective class at best compared to what our major is, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think it's too bad when Christians who fully believe the gospel end up dividing over peripheral issues. You shall receive dunamis, power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We'll talk as we get into chapter two about the prepositions concerning the Holy Spirit, Jesus had said, the Holy Spirit is with you, but he's going to be in you. And then he says here, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And that describes three basic orientations to the Holy Spirit. Upon is the one that gives you power to witness. 
Um, having the Holy Spirit come upon you doesn't make you do weird things. It doesn't give you the ability to read minds or move objects or do, you know, doesn't turn, doesn't turn your life into some kind of a strange, weird thing. The, the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming upon us is so that we will serve him, we'll be his witnesses, we'll share with people. And I believe that, and we'll talk about it a bit more in chapter two, but I, I really think that we need to understand until we try to go do anything for the Lord, it's just imperative that we experience the Holy Spirit coming upon us, that we really give him that complete and thorough control over our lives and submit ourselves completely to him. And since the power that comes from having the Holy Spirit come upon you, because there are a whole lot of people who are really trying to be good Christians, but they don't have power. And so they witness in the flesh and they try the best they can to live a good life. We'll see, again, when we get to chapter two, things happen when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the real point of it becomes the power to share the gospel. And so we'll see more of that as we move on through the passage. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Could have been a regular cloud, could have been a cloud of the glory of God. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. It calls them men, but they're no doubt angels who looked like men. Who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So the same way that you saw him going up, he'll come back down. He's not going forever. And so uh, with that assurance, and um, of course that was also prophesied. As he left there from the Mount of Olives and ascended up into heaven, um, Zechariah prophesies over in Zechariah 14 that Jesus will return again to judge the world and his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives and it will be in two. And uh, Daniel chapter 7 refers to the same event. So it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem, because he told them to, from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Doesn't mean it would take a day to get there. You were only allowed to walk like less than a mile on the Sabbath, and so all they're saying is it was a short distance. Um, in actuality, you can walk from the Mount of Olives, where he probably was, and take the trail down and go into Jerusalem and go to the upper room. You could probably do it in half an hour or less. But they went, and when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, probably had rented the room where they had the Last Supper, and like I mentioned, I think last week, when you go to Jerusalem, there are a lot of candidates for possible upper rooms, but the location that's close to where we think the original one was, there is a place, and they've built an upper room up there, and it really is moving to be able to be there. They came where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. So there were the 11 disciples, obviously Judas Iscariot wasn't there. And these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. They knew they were supposed to expect a promise. They didn't know what it was. They didn't understand the nature of it, but they knew they were supposed to stay there waiting. So a good thing to do is to pray. Okay, God, whatever it is that you're doing, I want you to do it. And so that's what they were doing um, with the women, or perhaps that should be translated um, their wives. It would be the same word. And then Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, and his brothers were there. Again, this is you know, a real difficult passage for people who don't believe Mary had other kids. 
Um, she obviously did. But finally, it would seem that his brothers, James and Jude and the others, believed in him after they saw him rise from the dead. And so now they were getting involved. One of his brothers ends up being the head of the church in Jerusalem, and so they play a prominent role. There were about 120 people there all together. It says, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. And the upper room's over there. There's no problem having 120 people in them. And he said, it seems like they got tired of praying. You ever do, you know, and you're like, yeah, I'm going to pray all night. And after a while, you run out of stuff to pray about, and your mind is kind of wandering. So leave it to Peter to stand up and have something to say. Remember, this is Peter before he was filled with the Spirit. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Remember Luke, who's writing as a doctor, he just had to go into details. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. So Peter does a little thing here that he um, quotes a couple of Old Testament scriptures, and he understood that it was prophesied that Judas would be, betray Jesus. What he's getting at is, hey, I think we need 12 disciples, and obviously one of them is lying there in a ditch with his guts hanging out, so I'm thinking we need another one. That, that verse uh, that he quotes, let another take his office, by the way, is one that you see on some uh, bumper stickers nowadays. It's Psalm 109, <laughs> verse 8, and... Um, it says, you know, something like, may his days be short and, his, and it may his office be taken by another. His days be few. So um, it says, pray for the president. But um, <laughs> this is where they got it. So he's making a case. Oh, by the way, you remember when you've read in Matthew's gospel um, that Judas went and threw the money that they gave him, the 30 pieces of silver, on the ground in the temple, and then he went and hanged himself, according to Matthew. And so some people see that this is a conflict. Um, I don't think it's a real problem. You know, I'd be more suspicious if the Bible had major con it didn't have any major conflicts, because then you'd think they just compared notes. It was probably more complicated than just that, and most likely what happened, if he went and threw the money back in the temple, they would be forbidden to put that money in the treasury because it was blood money. So typically what they would do would be give the money back or do something in the name of that person with the money. And so no doubt he went and hanged himself. The priest probably took the money and bought the field um, where he was hanging he probably hung himself by his girdle, the thing that he'd wear around his waist, and eventually it would slip out, falling down, crashing on the rocks. And so when someone came along and found him laying there with his guts hanging out on the, in that field, it's true that he fell on the field that was paid for with his money, and you know he was disemboweled. At the same time, it's also true that he hung himself. I just believe them both. I can easily envision how uh, both could be the case. So um, if, if you're really worried about that, I, there are better things to worry about. So now he goes, So therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So he's saying, we need another guy to fill out the place of the twelve, so he needs to be somebody who's been around us and known Jesus. Beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So 
He said, we need to pick somebody who's qualified to take the place of Judas because the 12 disciples sounds really well-rounded. 12's a good number, uh, number of government. Uh, the 11 just doesn't sound as good. So he goes, we need to find somebody to take the place. And so they said, uh, they proposed two. I don't know how they came up with the idea of okay, let's pick a couple and vote between those two. But they picked two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So Matthias won by a roll of the dice. Now, big question, commentators go back and forth on this. Did God consider Matthias to be the winner of Disciples Idol? Or, you know, or was this just the disciples? They hadn't, they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. No discernment, just a dumb idea. Um, there are arguments both ways. The, I tend to think, I mean, the, I, I would never want to say this dogmatically because it doesn't say that it was wrong, but Peter reasoned, um, and his reasoning kind of made sense, but in my experience, when you ask God to lead you and you only give him two choices, that's usually not the best thing because God is a lot smarter than we are. And I have found so many times when I'm looking for God's will and I'm trying to narrow it down between two and he just goes, you know what, neither one. There's something else I have in mind. And so we wanna stay creative in letting God be the Lord. So, but the main thing is, obviously a lot of people would say, clearly Paul was the 12th apostle was the 12th disciple because half the book of Acts is about him. He wrote 14 books of the New Testament. Um, Matthias never heard from him again. He just completely falls off the scene, maybe took his little trophy and went home. Uh, you know, I always feel bad about the other guy, Justice, who lost the vote but, um, or the cast of the lots. But it doesn't really matter um, in the New Jerusalem, there are 12 pillars that have the names of the 12 disciples. It will be interesting whose name is on the 12th pillar. Um, I'm thinking it's Paul. But um, at any rate, there were other apostles besides the 11. And if Matthias is considered one, and Paul's the 13th, and 13's an unlucky number. Um, but you know, Barnabas is also called an apostle, so at least we got 14. There are references to some other apostles, at least with a small a. But uh, my best guess is that they just jumped the gun. You know, you've done this. You're sitting around with nothing to do, you come up with a stupid idea. And that's kind of what my guess is, but I'll be the first one to apologize to Peter when we get to heaven. If Matthias's name is on the pillar, I'll go, hey, good call, Peter. Um, so, that's that. Chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Now, it doesn't mean it's a day, so how does a, how is a day fully come? The word there would probably better be translated was being fulfilled. The day of Pentecost was predicting what would happen when the church started. And so in the same way that the feast of Passover was fulfilled when Jesus was killed on the Passover. And the feast of first fruits was fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead. Now, 50 days later, the day of Pentecost, which just means 50, um, that celebration was clearly about the start of the church. And so that's what he's saying. When the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. They were all with one accord in one place. 
And that's amazing to get 120 people of one accord in one place after 10 days of being locked up in there. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Now it wasn't a wind and it wasn't a fire. It was as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house to where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. (laughs) Wild. Coming out of this upper room is this loud wind noise. It just And everybody could hear it. And if the room is where I think it was, if you were entering the temple, you'd look right over there and go, what is that noise? And then on each of the people, remember 120 people, maybe all of them had these, it looked like a flame above their head. It wasn't fire, it says it was like fire. But something appeared above them. That's a huge attention getter. And as people were gawking, and people from the area were running to see what in the world is going on, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, Jesus had told them, go wait for the promise of the Father because you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days hence, it was 10 days as it turned out, and he said, then the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So I think you can establish pretty readily that being filled with the Spirit and being baptized with the Holy Spirit are closely related, if not the same phenomenon. Because sometimes people are baptized with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. In this case, clearly it was a fulfillment. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit, but Luke calls it being filled with the Spirit. The idea of filled is not about quantity. It's about control. It's an issue of control. Remember Paul in Ephesians said, Don't be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but literally be being filled with the Spirit. I don't believe that being filled with the Spirit is something that just happens once. I think that's something that we need constantly. When do you need power from God? Just once? Now, probably the baptism of the Holy Spirit is just referring to the first time they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's also a baptism into the body whereby everyone who is a child of God, according to Romans 8, has the Spirit of God in them. So when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes in you. Even before that, the Holy Spirit is with you because it's only the Holy Spirit that can even convict a person of sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit has always been with you. If you're here tonight and you've never really accepted Jesus Christ, The Holy Spirit is still with you. But when you become a Christian, give your life to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in you in order to live inside of you. And but the but the third experience, the experience of being filled with the Spirit or baptized with the Spirit, is when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So He's with you, then He's in you. And then from within, he comes upon you. Jesus had uh, talked to the disciples about this over in John um, 14, where, and this is in advance, really, of, you know, he was just teaching them about the Holy Spirit, getting them ready for what was going to happen. And he said, uh, as he was talking about going to prepare a place and coming again, and so on. Uh, Then down in uh, verse 15 of John chapter 14, it says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I'll pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, somebody who's called alongside of you, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and it will be in you. Now, so there were the first two relationships. He's with you now. He's going to be in you. Now turn over to John chapter 20. 
Jesus, after his resurrection, was with the disciples in the upper room. And uh, beginning with verse 21 of John 20, Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. In other words, you have an opportunity to, to declare God's forgiveness. You get to tell people what God has done for them. This was before the day of Pentecost. So he was with them before. Here in John 20, which is probably the equivalent to when we got saved, when we accept Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in us. For the, That couldn't happen until Jesus died and rose. So he goes to the disciples and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So now they have the Holy Spirit inside them. But he still later tells them, but you need to go wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so are we clear on that kind of orientation? Now again, he's with you before you come to Christ. He is in you when you accept Jesus. And then he comes upon you when you ask him to have the Holy Spirit take control of your life. And in their case, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and by the way, it's not worth arguing about. Um, R.A. Torrey, who's one of my heroes uh, over 100 years ago, was, was speaking, and he always spoke on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He has uh, a book called The Baptism of the Holy Spirit. He was, a, he was an evangelist, who worked for D.L. Moody. And uh, Reuben Archer Torrey was a brilliant man, an attorney, became a Christian, ended up being the first dean of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and later became the first dean of Biola College when it was in downtown Los Angeles. And um, he was constantly harping on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he said every time he went to preach somewhere, D.L. Moody would tell him, either speak on why I believe the Bible is the Word of God, or speak on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So he was known for these two messages that he gave many times, but he got in an argument with some Baptist pastors, and they were saying, look, just don't call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Call it the filling of the Holy Spirit, but we don't like you using that term, baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he said, well, he said, look, it's really obvious that there are some people who minister and share the gospel with great power. And there are other people who are doing it with no power. And he said, I would rather have the right thing with the wrong name than the wrong thing with the right name any day. <laughs> kind of a scolding to these pastors who he was speaking to. It was over in Australia at the time. But <clears throat> don't argue over terminology. Just make sure that you're being filled with the Spirit. Make sure that you've asked to have the Holy Spirit come upon you. Um, some people believe that when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit is when you actually get your spiritual gifts. Um, because in their case, they began to speak in tongues at this point. Some people speak in tongues when they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Other people don't. Paul makes it clear not everyone speaks in tongues. The nature of the gifts is there's no gift that everyone has. Everyone has a different package of gifts. Um, so don't get hung up on that. But um, the spiritual gifts is what God uses to minister through us. And certainly spiritual gifts aren't much use if you're not being controlled by the Holy Spirit, if he's not driving. And so if you haven't asked to be baptized with the Holy Spirit or to be filled with the Holy Spirit, by all means, ask. And just go to the Lord and just say, God, I want everything that you have for me. Anything that you want to do, I want. I want you to work in my life. I belong to you. And if you've done that, if you've asked that prayer, you don't have to keep doing it. You don't have to keep wondering. He has done what you ask him to do because it's clearly his will at that point. So anyway, there were a bunch of people hanging around there in Jerusalem, devout men, and when they heard this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. 
Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? In other words, these guys are hicks. They certainly know all these languages. So they were pretty amazed and listening, and all of were all of these people were speaking in languages where one would hear. You don't know. We had this happen third service too. No, I'm just I'm faking it. So they were all hearing according to verse eight. How is it that we hear each in our own? And the word, Greek word there is dialectos. It means more than just a language. It's dialect within a certain area um, that uh, they were able to hear. And he goes on and lists all the various dialects from three different continents, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes or people, Gentiles, who had converted to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were praising God these languages. So they were all amazed and perplexed. It was disturbing to them. And they said to one another, what in the world does this mean? And some people started making fun of them and said they're just drunk, full of new wine, uh, literally sweet wine. Um, it's, it's the word uh, glucose, uh, from which glucose is sugar. It was a particular type of wine that was loaded up with sugar, thus fermenting um, faster. So, let's see if I can free up my antenna here. So anyhow, they were accusing him of being drunk. But Peter, standing up with the eleven. This is kind of interesting because in Acts chapter 2, they're still referring to the 11, not the 12, another evidence that I think that maybe Matthias didn't take. But uh, Peter, standing up, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. Come on, they're not drunk. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants I'll pour out my spirit. They'll prophesy, I'll show wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now it's important to note all of this Joel 2 prophecy was not fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Much of it is yet to be fulfilled. And it would really be a stretch. And why would he bring up talking about the things happening in the sun and moon and, and uh, that kind of stuff um, when obviously that wasn't happening on the day of Pentecost? The prophecy in Joel is referring, prime, it's a last day's prophecy, and much of it refers to Jesus' second coming and the judgment and the, even the tribulation period that'll happen before the second coming. but and he, So he doesn't say this is fulfilled, but he says this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In other words, what Joel prophesied, this is an introductory part of it. This was going to happen. And so really the fulfillment of Joel will ultimately happen later on, we believe, but it was starting there. So then Peter goes into his message, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands 
have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. He said, listen, you guys, Jesus was proven to be God by the things that you saw him do. And he was delivered up according to the purpose and foreknowledge of God. But you are the ones who, by lawless hands, were the instruments who crucified him and put him to death. Interesting, right there in that verse, you see human responsibility, and you also see divine sovereignty and providence. And I would encourage you, as you read your Bibles, don't choose between those. It's not either or. It's not Calvinism or Arminianism. It's both. God does things in a much more complicated way than we can understand. And so you can even see that here. Now he talked about David prophesying. And he quotes here from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always. By the way, that's a rough intro when he said, you guys crucified the Lord. Um, Not very seeker friendly. But he said, David said, I saw the Lord always before my face. He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. My heart rejoiced. My tongue was glad. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. So David prophesied of a resurrection, but Peter says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So he says, David prophesied and said, you know, my body is not going to rot. And David's body rotted, so what was he doing? He was prophesying. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ, the Messiah, to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in, in the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. So David was talking about this. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. We've all seen him. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 68, he said, David even prophesied of the Lord saying to the Lord, sit at my right hand. So he says, this isn't something new. I'm not making this up. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Why was it so powerful? I mean, it starts out by hearing the gospel in your own dialect. But then he's showing them scriptures that predicted this, And these guys saw the miracles that Jesus did. And not only that, many of them had seen him rise from the dead. So when you pull out Old Testament prophecies predicting that resurrection and the ascension, boy, they were starting to put two and two together here. And the Holy Spirit was just working in them as well. So the quick and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? men and brethren. And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit yourself. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So they say, What should we do? He says, Repent and be baptized. Now, repent means to change directions. Have, a, have a, another mind, metanoia. And so the idea here wasn't necessarily you need to stop doing everything that you're doing. It's that you need to start over. You need to really change directions, and that's what repentance is. It, repentance doesn't mean you don't ever sin again. 
Repentance means that you change your mind. And, um, and then to be baptized, it, it, it doesn't mean that water baptism is essential for salvation. He, he's not telling them, you know, that you won't be saved unless you're baptized. And so people who want to teach what's called baptismal regeneration, they love this verse. The Church of Christ harps on it all the time. And also on the thing where it says, baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But remember, he's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about yielding yourself to Jesus Christ. Water baptism is a picture of that. Yes, we're commanded to be baptized if we're believers. And I believe that everyone who's chosen to follow Jesus Christ should be baptized. But that's not what you do to be saved. You do that in order to demonstrate that you've been saved and you can compare a lot of different scriptures to do that. Also, you'll, when you run into someone from the Church of Christ, they'll make a big deal about you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Here's how you know someone's from the Church of Christ. They'll come to you and, well, for one thing, they never witness to non-Christians. They only witness to Christians, try to get them to join their group. So they hang around churches. We used to run them off at Calvary Chapel all the time. Um, but, you know, they say, so have you been baptized? You go, yeah. And they go, were you baptized in the name of Jesus? And you go, I don't know. I don't even remember. I mean, I just went to water. They baptized me. And, and you know, in, it, Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, to, when, when he gave them the Great Commission, Matthew 28, he said, you know, that you need to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father in the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. So the church has generally baptized in the entire Trinity. Um, that certainly includes Jesus, because he's the Son. So any, either baptismal formula is fine. It's silly to make a distinction. If you take it from Acts, you're ignoring what Jesus said in Matthew. Now what Pastor Chuck does, just in case people are all paranoid about it, Chuck says... I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. And I usually say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, in the name of his Son, Jesus, in the name of the Holy Spirit, just so people don't get confused. But he wasn't laying down a formula. He was basically saying, if you're responding to this, change your life. Baptism is a sign of that repentance, deciding I'm not going to keep going the way I've been going is an important part of that. And so the, the real, uh, you know, and receiving the Holy Spirit is a part of it too, but basically gives a real simple, I mean, the gospel that he presented was Jesus died and rose from the dead, and you need to turn to him. You need to stop going the way you're going and instead go with him. That's really simple, and there are a bunch of places in the scriptures where the gospel is presented that simply, or even sometimes simpler. What Paul said to the Philippian jailer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So you don't need to hit people with a 12-volume systematic theology and train them and everything before you'll baptize them, before, you, before you, they can accept Jesus. You want to follow Jesus, follow him. That's kind of what he was saying. And then as you follow him, do what he says to do. And so he lays that out, and it says with many other words, <laughs> I guess Luke got kind of bored with recording everything. Knowing Peter, he probably kept laying it on. And he go, but this was the gist of it. He testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse. The word there is scolios, from which we get our word scoliosis. It means twisted from this perverse generation. It's not an insulting thing, oh, you perverts. No, it, it's just that people are tweaked. They're a little off without Jesus. And what they need is an adjustment, um, just like somebody's back who needs to be adjusted. Um, so don't read this and think, yeah, he's going, they're all just so perverted and everything. No, we were all in a place whereby we were a bit twisted. Probably part of us wanting the right things, trying to be good and whatever, but it was just off a few degrees, and that was a problem, and, and so he says, there's hope for you. You can be saved. 
And then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And there at the southern steps in Jerusalem are a bunch of baptismal pools that they used for ceremonial cleansings and stuff before they would enter the south entrance to the temple where most of the people would enter. And uh, they're beautiful. You can see, you know, 2,000-year-old little chips of tile that are there from where those baptismal pools were, and some of the walls are still in existence. Don't tell anybody, but one of those little pieces of tile I have somewhere, <laughs> I stuck it in my pocket. But uh, you're not supposed to do that. But um, I repented later. But uh, So they, he said, come on and get baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000 people got saved. It's an interesting connection that the day the law was given and Moses came down off the mountain and they were, they were worshiping the golden calf and God got mad at them and 3,000 people were killed on the day the law came. But on Pentecost, the day when the church came, 3,000 people were saved. And they continued steadfastly. They were so into it. They were focused. This was the emphasis of their lives the apostles' doctrine, they were, they were teaching the people what they knew, and fellowship, koinonia, they were connecting with each other, they were living and sharing as they go on to express here, they, but they were, so, they were as devoted to the apostles' teaching as they were to fellowship and to the breaking of bread, probably a reference to communion, um, but a little later it talks about them sharing meals and so it could be a little bit more of a generic one, at least in the second description, that they were just eating together. But when they took communion, they usually also had a, had a potluck, a love feast um, before it, so it could just be seeing the whole thing. I don't think breaking bread here in verse 42 would be just having a meal, because would you really say that somebody's continuing steadfastly in eating? You know, so clearly it was something more than that, and probably referring to communion. Um, breaking of bread and in literally the prayers. Perhaps the praying the psalms together, worshiping together, or something like that, but certainly praying together. And uh, this is, Acts 2.42 is the summary of what church is all about. It's, it's the scripture that when I was meditating on it, I really felt the Lord leading us to, to make sure that we are providing opportunities for all of these things. Um, and in particular, I think that fellowship is the one that we, in our culture, most often neglect. And so that's why for three or four months, whatever, I canceled this Wednesday night study, and I asked everyone in the church to get involved in a home fellowship. And I still feel that that is just utmost in importance. I'm going to continue in the fall um, teaching Wednesday nights um, because I really want to get all the way through the Bible, so I want to finish the book of Acts. Um, but I hope that you are involved in doing what church does, and that is fellowship. That's a part of it. Now, it, you don't have to go to one of our home fellowships. Our home fellowships are great. We talk about what we talked about on Sunday. It's easy for the leader to plan it. It's just a way of people loving each other, caring about each other, hanging out, talking about the Lord, and talking about their life. And if you don't have that, you're missing something. But if you have it with somebody else, you have another group of friends you do, whether you go to a different Bible study or whatever, hey, that's cool, it's fine. But you don't have the full experience that God wants for you unless you are involved in fellowship. And I, and I know that some of you don't do that because it's intimidating to you. And you're just afraid that people are going to be weird. We make it so that you can change groups anytime you want. You can sit out. You can do... But this is vitally important. And you will not have everything that God wants for you unless you are actively involved in fellowship. And by fellowship, I don't mean going to a Bible study where somebody teaches you all the time. Teaching is central. Teaching is where we learn what God has for us and how to live our lives. So far be it from me, I'm a teacher, so I don't, 
I'm not going to put down teaching, but I have seen people who saturate themselves with the apostles' teaching and they neglect breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer, and you become like a wheel with a flat edge thumping down the road. To be a well-rounded Christian, you need all these to be involved in your life. And so I want to push you again and encourage you as we begin in a few weeks a new set of home fellowships. Pray about hosting one. Pray about getting involved with one if you haven't already. Um, and you're going, come on, give us a break. You know, we're actually more into the teaching. Well, this is what I'm teaching you, okay? So, so this is that's what the church was. And they were into it. They really were. And then fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Amazing things happen when you obey God, when you do what he says. And we've seen some of those kinds of things even since we've started our home fellowships too. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common. Koinos, the word from which koinonia comes. So they were hanging out together. Now, remember, these people who got saved, 3,000 people, were from all over the world, from three continents, as far away as from Rome and down in Egypt and over in Arabia and everywhere, and so Syria. And so here they are, and they're like, I don't want to leave. There isn't any church where I live. And so they were hanging out together and just sharing. Now, it doesn't say that this is something that the church is commanded to do. And we discover later that the Jerusalem church ended up having a lot of problems because of their communal living. Um, they ended up going broke. They had a problem with Ananias and Sapphira and other things as well. But they were selling their stuff and dividing among anyone who had need. And that's an admirable thing. As soon as, And it's something that I think we shouldn't just neglect. If we have things that we don't need and somebody else needs them, of course we should be able to share. And sometimes it just means selling something and, and then giving that money so that other people can benefit from it. It's what as a church we, we try to do is we try to reach out and help various people and channel that. All who believed were together, had all things in common, sold their stuff, divided them to whoever had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple... They were still going to the temple at this point. And breaking bread from house to house. You can have communion at your house, but also having a meal with people is really special. I, sometimes it's hard to get time to have people over, to get together with others, but it's so important. Even just to go out for a breakfast or a cup of coffee or something like that. It's connecting with people in a non-threatening kind of way that allows you to share and and just talk about how your life's going. They were just doing it from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. I love that phrase. Oh, man. Life can become so complicated. And our hearts can become so divided. Because as Jesus said, talking about Martha, you're just really torn by many things. And I, and I feel that in a society that just tries to squeeze the last ounce out of everything that there is to life, um, we need to be finding simplicity. I'm not saying being a Luddite, you know, throw your computer out the window and stay off the internet or whatever, although, you know, sometimes that might be something that God would want someone to do. Um, not against technology. Some technology helps simplify things. But it's important to decide what really matters. It's important to figure out, you know, how much periphery do I have in my life? How much extra stuff? I'm trying to work on this constantly with my schedule, with my books, with my possessions and all sorts of things. I just want a simple life. Because a complicated life means a bunch of unnecessary headaches and problems. And for some of you, this simplicity might even mean narrowing down the amount of friends that you try to be friends with and just get a small group of people and focus on them. Um, you can't be friends with everybody that wants to be friends with you. That just doesn't work. 
but we need to create space in our lives. So often it's in the space that we find God, that he shows up. And as I was talking Sunday um, in Second Peter about Peter's metaphor of the dance, and that a part of that has to do with, with waiting and delay and pauses, as all good music and good dancing and good sports and just about anything else that you can do physically involves activity, but it also involves knowing when not to act and knowing when to just pause. And, and so, I mean, God's just been nailing me with this, and maybe some of you, the Lord's speaking to you tonight too, simplicity. Let's just get back to some simple things. Let's not try to complicate everything that we do. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Who wouldn't love that? And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. People got saved constantly. They didn't do an evangelistic crusade. Um, They weren't like trying to advertise to get a bunch of people, thinking if we can just get everybody together. When the church does what the church is supposed to do, the Lord adds daily such as should be saved. And we've seen that happen where we don't try to do a big, you know, emotional appeal to get people to walk an aisle, but I meet people every week who have, who have found the Lord here, um, many of them who have accepted the Lord at some of the home, home groups and stuff too. And, and evangelism happens naturally and automatically, not mechanically and artificially when we live the kind of life that, that Luke is describing here in the early church, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and breaking of bread and to prayers. When we do that and we share with others and we live simple lives, God draws people. The Lord adds those who, who will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. I pray that you will help us more and more to learn what it means to be the church the way you want us to. And God, I pray that if there are people here who have not been baptized with your Holy Spirit, who've never sensed that power as you have just driven them and drawn them and helped them and strengthened them as they feel like they've never been used, I pray that tonight they'll set some time aside to just wait and talk to you and ask you to fill them with your spirit, to overwhelm them, to baptize them, to come upon them. Lord, give them whatever gifts you choose to give them. You give gifts as you will. But Lord, I pray that everyone here who wants your power would know that they have it because they've asked. Lord, help us to just obey all that's in your word. There's so much in these first two chapters. and So Lord, we need you to kind of narrow it down for each of us and call our attention to just a couple things that we can bring before you and ask you to do in our lives. Thanks for this time. Thank you for these people. Bless each of their lives in a real special way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless. Save.